Welcome to the XR for Business podcast with your host, Alan Smithson. Today's guest is Scott Montgomery from Scope AR. Scott is the CEO and co-founder of Scope AR, a global leader in developing augmented reality solutions and products for industrial clients focused around field maintenance, manufacturing, and training. As the pioneer of utilizing AR for industry support and training, Scope AR are partnered with technology leaders such as Google and Microsoft. Since founding the company in 2011, Scott is one of the first executives to get augmented reality tools in use by multi-billion dollar corporations. Having launched many AR firsts, Scott has become one of the industry's thought leaders and visionaries. He shared his knowledge and spoken about some of the most innovative uses of AR at several leading conferences, including South by Southwest, Augmented World Expo, Unity Vision Summit, and XRDC. Some of the clients include Unilever, Prince Castle, and Lockheed Martin. To learn more about Scope AR, visit scopear.com, S-C-O-P-E-A-R.com. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Alan. Yeah, man, I'm really super excited. We've been kind of chatting offline, and it's amazing the work you guys are doing, and you're starting to really see this, this uptake of augmented reality being used in enterprise. So can you maybe give people a 10,000-foot view of Scope AR, what you're doing, and who your clients are, and what they're using it for? Yeah, sure. So we really view that augmented reality is a, a way of interacting with the world in a, a way that's much more intuitive, the way that you know we evolved with our hands and our eyes. And so we really view that there's a huge market potential there. I think there was a stat out there that said that you know 90% of Silicon Valley is focused on the worker that's at their desk, you know, using computers and uh, screens. And there's a vast market out there that is untapped. It's these field workers that are using their hands and their eyes. And so if we can uh, use augmented reality to get them the information they need at the time of need and really help them to become an expert when they need to know that information. And like I said, we think that's a huge market. So we really approach the problem in, in a two different ways with our products. So the first is um, uh, a remote assistance capability. So we were the first to market uh, with a product called Remote AR. We launched it in 2015. So that was far before any of the other 30 competitors are out there today. But the idea is that it allows you to communicate over video uh, between a technician and an expert. So it's almost like FaceTime. If you're looking at a piece of equipment, maybe a car engine, you can take your phone or a pair of smart glasses like a HoloLens, and you can look at this piece of equipment and transfer this video back to somebody with expertise. And this expert can now draw on their side of the screen and give really good remote guided instructions. So the problem with something like FaceTime is that the communication channel is not wide enough to provide really good instructions. You know, when was the last time you actually communicated with a mechanic over the phone or over FaceTime? There's no chance. <laughs> Never. Yeah, exactly. It would probably be very painful for, for him to guide you how to replace something simple like a spark plug. It's that one right there. No, to the left. No, no, the other left. But with augmented reality, it's a lot easier. You know, you can just uh, point, drop an arrow or, or some other annotation. The communication channel is much more rich. The second capability is all about work instructions. We define work instructions as any type of linear instruction that can show you step-by-step step how to do things. Going back to the mechanic example, now this mechanic could maybe load up some instructions for you, and it would overlay a 3D model on top of that car engine. Nice and rich uh, animations showing that you got to take a screwdriver under the screw, and it's a really intuitive instruction. And so that can be applied to anything from training to uh, maintenance instructions to manufacturing instructions. The whole purpose of the company is all around making everyone an expert. So either through real-time guidance, allowing an expert who understands what he's doing to transmit his knowledge in real time in an efficient way to a remote technician, or by loading up these instructions to provide that technician really intuitive instructions such that he might actually not even need training. 
Wow. I got to try something similar at the LiveWorks conference. I pulled apart a brake. There was a brake caliper. I held up an iPad. It said, pull the pin, unscrew this. And in four or five steps, I had disassembled the brake calipers and, and reassembled it. I've never, never done that before in my life, and I was able to do it. And something else that I think is amazing is I had this realware device on where I could see a screen in front of me. It was a tiny little screen, and I was able to repair uh, an air filter on a giant John Deere tractor. I don't know where the air filter is. I have no idea, but it walked me through step by step by step how to do it. And I think as we move into exponential growth, these types of technologies are not only going to be nice to have, but they're going to be a must have in all enterprises. I totally agree. As businesses need to always improve the bottom line, this is the way to do it by making your workers more efficient, getting them the knowledge that they need. That's a great way to make them a much better worker, do their jobs better and safer and faster. There's also some pretty massive macroeconomic benefits to this as well. We keep hearing about the aging workforce and how you know businesses literally can't find good workers. And a lot of those original workers that have been in their careers for 35 years are leaving the jobs. Knowledge transfer between those older workers before they leave and younger workers to get them trained up as fast as possible is really important. AR really has a huge benefit there as well. Let's talk numbers because it's one thing to say AR provides better value, but let's put it this way. If any enterprise in manufacturing, for example, were to see a 5 to 7% increase in efficiency, that would be reason to celebrate. And you guys are seeing numbers that are 10x that. So maybe let's talk about Unilever, one of the case studies that you have listed on your website. We worked at the factory in Gloucester, UK, and we introduced our remote assistance application into the factory. We saw some pretty great results in reduction of downtime. The use case around this factory it was an ice cream factory. The line was going down more often than they'd like. And the problem is this is a clean factory. To enter the actual facility, you have to go through a clean room process that takes a couple hours. It wasn't necessarily that fixing the line was difficult. It was that the guy that knew how to fix the line wasn't actually there. So whenever something went down, they had to call this guy. He had to drop what he was doing. He had to walk across the campus to enter the clean room and then go and fix the problem. This was multi-hours before they could even start fixing the problem. What we did is we introduced a remote assistance application. So now when they call the guy for help, the guy can start guiding these frontline technicians on how to solve the problem. And quite often the problem is fairly simple. It's go replace this thing, or it's just a fault in this switch. We were able to reduce their downtime by about 50%. You reduce their downtime by 50%. Now, for every minute of downtime, there's a specific cost for that. 80,000 euros a month in productivity. Yeah, and that was on that one factory line in that one facility. So scaling that across, pretty ridiculous uh, return on investment. So 50%, so you're cutting their downtime in half, which saves them 80 grand a month, and your solution costs a fraction of that. That's correct. Why isn't every company doing this? Part of the challenge is that change is hard, and especially the executives. They've been doing the same thing that quote-unquote works for the past few decades. It's pretty tough for them to buy into, oh, there's this new technology that's putting up these types of numbers. Like, are they repeatable? You know, another customer, uh, similar to Unilever, I was overhearing one of my, my partners with a call with one of the C-level execs at this company. We'd already gone through a pilot with similar numbers to Unilever. And this exec was like, that's great, but have you actually replicated this? And kind of the response from the, from, it was the innovation team we were talking to. Listen, we're seeing 50% reduction in downtime. Even if these are ridiculously far off by an order of magnitude, this is still a very good investment and we should probably implement this across the board. It's just that change. It's, it's almost too good to be true, which is a, a real big problem. 
with one of our other customers, Lockheed Martin, and talk about those numbers in a second. But initially, when the results came back, they were far too good to be true. So much so that they told them to go back and do it again a second time to prove it. You're the second person to say this. I spoke to Mohammed Rajani from Macy's, and they conducted an experiment with one location using VR for sales and marketing. And they saw 65% increase in sales conversions. 65%. Wow. And they're like, something's wrong. This is... So they, they did it with six locations, still 65%. So rather than roll it out slowly, they rolled it out across their entire enterprise. So now they have over 100 locations. And now their average across the 100 locations is still 45% increase. Wow. So the numbers are real. They may sound too good to be true, but they are true. That is the transformative power of virtual augmented mixed reality. This technology is the most powerful technology we've ever invented. It's crazy. It's merging the power of computers and their vast capacity to perform infinitely fast calculations and have infinite memory with the problem solving and mechanical ability of the human race. We as humans were really good at individual problem solving, but repetitive calculations were not super accurate whereas computers do it correctly every single time. The whole reason for training is repetition so that you can hammer something into our brain so that when you actually need that procedure to be there, it's there. But if you can rely on perfect, infinite memory of computers and then transfer that information into your brain in an efficient way when you need it, that's the whole benefit. So it's, it's really, we're becoming cyborgs is essentially what this is, but it's for the benefit of, of human race. Yeah, it's crazy because this has the potential to disrupt the entire education system. Our entire education system is predicated on forcing people to memorize things. We don't need to do that anymore. Absolutely. We can get the answer to anything as needed at the real time that we need them. And with the introduction of cloud computing, edge computing, and 5G, we'll be able to get answers to literally anything in context to the world around us. So I'll be able to look at a machine with my smart glasses on, and it'll automatically walk me through step-by-step step how to fix it. That's what you're doing, right? That's exactly what we're doing, yep. So... If that's the case, then you've got Lockheed Martin, Unilever, you've got a bunch of other clients, they're all doing this. Is anybody starting to roll this out at scale now? Is that the next step? They run this through into their whole system and into their organization? Yeah, so we're definitely starting to see scale across organizations. One of the challenges with this technology is it's so new that you kind of have to be careful with it. If you have a pilot that goes sideways, then it can derail the whole thing. With one customer, we actually implemented it in, I think, three factories. And one of the factories had a really bad experience. They, they chose a really bad use case. They weren't really careful about what they were doing. We actually told them that what they were trying to do was not possible. And lo and behold, yeah, it didn't work. <laughs> we had really great results in the two other factories. The third one kind of derailed the whole thing. So these days, we're really making sure that we handhold our customers to make sure that they are using it in a way that's appropriate and are going to have a, a good experience. There's just a, a few fundamental things in the technology that cause problems. For example... Yeah, I was going to say, can we unpack that? Because people listening, listen up. This is the moment. This is the education. Uh, it's not a one-size-fits-all technology. And I think that's where executives are getting confused. There's just there's so much FUD out there, and we're putting up these results that are too good to be true. And in some instances, they are. So, for example, if you're using the Microsoft HoloLens, if you look at a shiny surface the side of a big beer tank, it's not going to track because the lasers on the HoloLens get reflected and confuse it. And so you get a lot of drift. The HoloLens doesn't work particularly well outside because the lasers get drowned out by sunlight. There's these little gotchas of things that unless you really have a deep understanding of the technology, you wouldn't expect, right? 
when we do implementations, first of all, we work with our customers very closely. I think one of the reasons why we win deals versus our competitors is we've been told that our customer support is, is by far the best. And that's why we win deals. And it's because we handhold these guys. We're not trying to grow too fast. We're trying to make them successful. Choosing the right pilot, get them the right numbers so that they can have success and then they can, we can teach them how to scale this into production so that they have the best possible outcome. The last thing we want to do is have a poor experience for anyone. Through that education, we can make those people our champions in those organizations, make them successful. And really, these people can really improve their careers by becoming experts in this and grow it throughout the organizations. Are you seeing people in these organizations starting to put together teams specifically for, you know, XR technologies? Yeah, we are. Yeah. And it, it's kind of funny because a few years ago, these teams were basically Unity developers. They hired a bunch of Unity guys to you know, create one-off proof of concepts without really realizing that a scalable solution existed. You know, the whole reason we built our uh, software was so that it didn't require anybody to have to code because, you know, coding is not scalable. It's not maintainable. It takes months to develop a single application for one-time use, and then you basically throw it away. Yeah, I know. <laughs> what we want to do is we want to enable guys like, you know, documentation specialists and mechanical engineers to be able to create content very quickly. Something that a team of Unity developers would take two months to develop, you can do pretty much in about a day or two with our platform. So it's much, much faster. The, the iterations are much faster and you can really get into your pilot and your production a lot faster. And then obviously there's a whole lot of production uh, level stuff for you know, encryption, data management, and you know, all the enterprise readiness. What are the, some of the costs associated? Because I, I know that's a question that comes up a lot uh, when we're speaking with customers. How much does it cost to, to get started? What does that look like? You can get into a pilot pretty cheaply, you know, five-figure range. Like I said, we try to uh, handhold our customers with you know, really, really... Give a number. What's the minimum? I, I don't like disclosing price, pricing publicly. <laughs> these, you know, these are enterprises and... Yeah, like it's a hundred grand. Like a hundred grand for an enterprise is nothing. So like, is it 50 grand? Is it hundred grand? Like what would be a starting number that people have to have in mind? Because... A lot of companies, we can do a 360 video for $5,000. The guy came over and told me it's not the same. And they, they need to understand that there are, is a difference between this. We, we can definitely get started for less than hundred grand, substantially less than hundred grand. And then, you know, at scale, yeah, it's, it's in the six figures. So that's reasonable. An hour of downtime on a machine is potentially millions of dollars. Absolutely. One of my slides, I think, said something like 50,000 per minute uh, of downtime. <laughs> so get started with a pilot for 50 grand is, is nothing. I think people need to understand that this is not just a regular investment. A lot of times companies will invest in technology that gets them marginal results, these little incremental improvements, but this is a exponential improvement on what they're doing. Absolutely. This is really a generational shift in technology. Uh, I think this is going to be as big as the internet and tablets were in terms of revolutionizing how people interact with data. Uh, this is going to be the same thing, but on a much broader scale on the manufacturing side. If you go into a, any given factory, most people are still doing things with you know, paper binders uh, with instructions. I remember I was on the, um, the assembly line at Boeing a few years ago. And they told us they have one binder, a singular binder that's outside of the assembly area because it has to be one binder. Because if the instructions change, you can't have a duplicate or an old copy sitting around. That's incredibly 1990s. <laughs> so we were pretty shocked at the lack of IT in that, in that process. So you know, just having the ability to have an electronic version of these instructions is up to date is, is pretty revolutionary. 
And then being able to give your workers the information they need and contextual information, that's just a sea change in how this, these companies operate. Yeah, I think it's pretty revolutionary. And I think one of the questions that's come up a lot is people don't want to wear glasses. But what I think people don't understand is in manufacturing and field service, they're already wearing safety glasses. It's not anything new. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I do think we, we have a ways to go uh, with the hardware. The real wear device is pretty good. It's got certainly some limitations, but for certain use cases, it's great. The HoloLens 2, I think, is really interesting. can't wait to see what comes down in the future. I'm sure there's lots of really cool innovations coming out in the next couple of years. Yeah, I think that's what people really need to understand is that this technology, if you go back five years, didn't even exist. We had none of them, like zero. There was a couple of Google Glass type things, but in the last five years, We've come absolute leaps and bounds. I remember going to um, SVVR and uh, Augmented World Expo three years ago and trying some of these things. You know, there was a see what I see pick and pack for warehousing, and it was so crap that in my mind I was like, "This is just terrible." Like it's it's going to be ten years before this is something. I went back this year, and that same demo was absolutely precise and perfect, and it just worked perfectly and flawlessly. I think the time is now for brands and companies to really start investing in this technology. I completely agree. And if your company is not investing in this technology now, your competitors are. <laughs> and so when they start rolling it out later this year, next year, they're going to start seeing these ridiculous return on investment gains. And if, if you're not even building a team that's familiar with this technology and starting thinking about the change management aspect of it, then you're going to be left behind. Yeah, and then we're already starting to see all the venture capital companies, they all invested in these platforms and stuff. And I, you guys are venture-backed, aren't you? Yes, we are. So venture-backed companies are like Scope AR, but what they are failing to realize is that content companies are actually getting scooped up as well. PTC just bought a, a content studio, and I believe uh, it was Accenture or... I think it was Accenture. It was one of the two. Anyway, they bought a, a content studio recently, and New York Times bought a content studio. So there's kind of this... You need the platforms, but you also need the content, which is why we started the XR Ignite program to get these companies ready for that. Absolutely. How are you finding the content creation for what you guys are doing? Are you building custom content or is it just the platform serves as, a, as its own standalone content creation system? Uh, we can build custom content. We have a, a team called you know, our creative services team that will generally do quick proof of concepts and consult on pilot projects for companies. As I said, part of our value proposition is really that customer support. So we really want an organization to be successful. So when they're consulting on their business cases and, and use cases, um, the creative services team can go in there and help. And creating content is part of that. But generally, we like to you know, only create a very simple project for an organization. And then we like to hand it over uh, with our product and allow their team to start creating. So you know, that's been very successful. You know, we, we need to you know, handhold those creators. But... You know, that's the only way we're going to get scale is uh, by, by teaching people how to use this, this revolutionary tool. Where I kind of see this is that, you know, this is like introducing PowerPoint in like 1995. Unless you've seen what a really good PowerPoint deck looks like, you know, you don't even know how to use it. You're creating the standards. Yeah, I think it's more showing what's possible and, you know, kind of best practices. We like to call our, our tool PowerPoint for augmented reality because it's drag and drop. You don't need to code. You don't need to hire an army of Unity developers to create your proof of concepts. Mostly it's people that don't know how to code that use it. And it's, it's all drag and drop. Those people typically train other people in the organization. That's how we grow. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, let me ask you a question. 
you've got these kind of numbers on, on the website, reductions in downtime and that sort of thing. What are some of the other KPIs that you guys are using to measure success? There's actually quite a few KPIs that we, we track depending on the use case. So this is part of discovery with our sales team and our customer support team, looking at those use cases to, to make sure the customer has success. So in a manufacturing example, we'll look at overall efficiency. So how long it takes them to manufacture something. So for example, the by now famous Lockheed Martin numbers are pretty astounding. You know, they, they track things in terms of what they describe as the OODA loop. It stands for observe, orient, decide, and act. For any given procedure, about 50% of the time is that first OOD part, observe, orient, decide. And what that means, I'll give you a concrete example. You know, they're building the space shuttle with the technology and they've done a whole lot of case studies around a whole bunch of different procedures and torque fastening. So on the space shuttle, there's something like 3000 fasteners on, on the space shuttle. And so in the old world, they would go into a binder, they would flip to the page that had a table of uh, each of these fasteners and they'd go find fastener one. They'd memorize the torque setting from this table they would go find fastener one in the real world and uh, they would set their torque setting and you know set it. And then they would crawl out of the space shuttle, go back to the binder, find the torque setting two, set their torque wrench, go back into the space shuttle. So this overhead of you know reading the manual and then going back in and crawling in was uh, accounting for about 50%. And again, this was not you know an isolated case study. This is replicated across um, dozens of case studies now. And so what they were able to do simply by putting the information uh, in the HoloLens. So now that in the new world, the technician goes into the space shuttle. It shows the location in 3D space of the fastener number one, uh, and right above it is the torque setting. So now the guy sets his torque wrench, does it. Then it flips to number two. In 3D space, it shows him where this is. So they're seeing a reduction in that overhead that they call it time to information, about 99%. So that's resulting in about 42 to 46% uh, productivity improvements. That's one of the, the really key uh, metrics we've got is, is reducing that time to information making it so intuitive that somebody doesn't need to be trained and doesn't need to go back and consult a manual. It's just right in your heads up display and being shown to you in a 3D context. So you don't even have to do that mental mapping of finding something in the real world, right? In other cases, if we're talking about a field service example, it can be uh, you know reduction in downtime or uh, first-time fix rates or uh, first-time diagnosis rates. Mean time to resolution uh, is another metric. So it really depends on, on the use case. Uh, we've got a, a pretty robust return on investment calculator that we work with our, our customers on for any uh, given uh, pilot they do. Uh, and it's got about a dozen different metrics in there, uh, just depending on, on their use case. It could also be in a reduction in travel time. I mean, that's a huge expense. If, if you no longer have to uh, fly somebody out to a remote field in Alaska to, to fix something, uh, that can be a huge cost savings. It's interesting you say that because we had uh, Jonathan Moss, uh, the head of learning for Sprint on, and they implemented augmented reality training on the phone. So they, the, it's for retail workers. And they pull out their phone, they point it at the thing, and they, they learn all about the new features. They were measuring all sorts of different KPIs. And the one they didn't think to measure, which became the important one, was travel. It saved so much time and money not having to fly people around uh, that it saved them millions and millions of dollars. Because, you know, you're talking 30,000 people. It's, it's crazy. It scales really quickly when you push it out. And they actually had one more unintended consequence that that the people that were learning from on their tablets, they actually started using their learning modules to teach their customers because they were just so good. Let's use it. There's definitely all sorts of, of benefits to this technology as well. And one thing you touched on right at the very beginning, the aging workforce is starting to retire and being able to capture experts' knowledge is vital. 
Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, we just rolled out a feature right before the Augmented World Expo uh, called Session Recording. So the idea is that you know while you're on a, a call between this technician and expert, we're recording the call, but we're doing it in a novel way. Uh, we're recording it in three channels instead of two. So we're recording the audio, the video, and then the 3D annotations and you know the point cloud or the mesh of what you're looking at. So that you know, we can then replay those annotations back on the, the original piece of equipment. So in this way, uh, you know, while you're on a call between this technician and expert, you're literally in the process of transferring knowledge from a person with knowledge to a person without knowledge. And if you can record that and then use it for future workers and potentially bring it into a you know training type scenario, that's incredibly powerful. I think as time goes on, we're going to start seeing a pretty monumental shift. I mean, there's so many macroeconomic factors. I could talk for hours about this, but one of the big ones is that previously, let's call it 10 years ago, customers used to buy an engine and they owned the engine and any maintenance on it, you know, they, they owned or they had to do. Um, and so they would probably call up the engine manufacturer and get support and they would pay, you know, a pretty penny for that support, 250 bucks an hour or something like that. And so for the manufacturer of that engine, um, if it broke down, it wasn't their problem. And in fact, it was actually a profit center for them to send out their technicians to go fix their faulty engine. But these days, the whole business model has shifted. They're buying horsepower. They're, they're not buying furnaces. They're buying BTUs. So it's almost like an SLA type model. And so now uh, when something goes wrong, it's up to the manufacturer to go out and service that. Now it's a cost center. What this means for the, for the workforce is that previously, because it was a profit center, if you had an older worker and a younger worker, it would make total sense for them to go out into the field and work with each other for six months. This young apprentice could learn tons of stuff on the job, but now it's not really economical. You want to shorten those training times because it's a cost center. That means that these younger people in the workforce are actually getting less trained. <laughs> we can't bring in this technology soon enough just because of so many different factors. It's pretty impressive. Of all of the interviews we've done, we've done your episode 41 of the XR for Business podcast, and it's such a varied group of people. And training and real-time collaboration comes up in, in almost every call. So it's interesting that you guys have, have been doing this. And you've been doing this since 2011, right? Loosely. You know, really, we started taking it full-time in about 2015. How did you end up saying, oh, I'm going to make smart glasses for the future of manufacturing? It was a bit of a windy, twisty tale. I had developed some computer vision technology in like 2010 for a previous endeavor that didn't pan out. I thought this might be cool to apply to augmented reality. So uh, my first ambition was in marketing and advertising. And uh, of course, even today, we're not seeing a whole lot of penetration in marketing and advertising in AR. I was trying to recognize billboards and magazine covers and stuff. At the time, I was in Edmonton and I was going to Toronto trying to work with advertising executives. And they're like, uh, yeah, I don't see the use for this. <laughs> we landed a couple small contracts, but really the big break was a big industrial company came to us and they said, hey, can we use this for training? We thought, oh, that's a cool idea. So we did a quick proof of concept for them. And this was on an iPad too back in 2011. They thought it was amazing, but we really wanted a pair of AR glasses. They said, here, here's a big pile of money. Go buy every pair of AR glasses on the market. And if nothing's suitable, then build some. So we ended up randomly meeting with Epson. At the time, they had the Epson BT100s, which didn't have a camera on them. So I went to the product manager and I said, hey, can we hawk glue a camera on there? And they said, yeah, I don't see why not. And so what we ended up doing was we built these glasses where we hawk glued this webcam on it. The webcam ran to a laptop where we did the computer vision calculations. And then we used the external monitor plug and hacked together this cable and hacked into the operating system of the glasses to accept this video. And this was kind of one of the proof of concepts of the first AR glasses. And so we showed this at a trade show in, in 2012 wow. in Las Vegas. Um, it's this giant mining trade show that only happens every four years. And it was a bit of a novelty for this organization. 
and we had center stage. It was an amazing location, but we were only supposed to show the, the demo like three times a day over three days. And we ended up showing it over a hundred times. And every time we showed it, it was a crowd of about a hundred people around being like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. This is going to revolutionize training. And this one guy's story kind of sticks out. He says, I've been uh, maintaining this exact piece of equipment for my entire career. Uh, it was a quarter million dollar rock drill. Maintaining this for my entire career, 35 years, I've probably shortened the lifespan of this equipment by like half by doing it the wrong way. I've trained hundreds of other guys to do it the wrong way. And so I probably cost the company tens of millions of dollars. So now I'm on my own. I really need this technology. How do I get it? And we kept hearing this type of story from a so, like, ton of customers. So the light bulb kind of went off. We're like, oh, wow, I think we've probably found something here. From there on, we really, really didn't know. I mean, just like yourself, I didn't really know what to build. But we started getting contracts from guys like Boeing and Toyota and NASA to build out proof of concepts. And through these initial proof of concepts, we realized that, oh, wow, yeah, this is going to be the future. A scalable platform is the way to take advantage of this technology. We could potentially be the PowerPoint of augmented reality. In 2015, we all decided to go full time. The tea leaves were changing. Google Glass had launched. You know, ODG had a pretty good pair of glasses at the time. We thought this to time the market, we'd be ready to go by the time it, it uh, got going. And here we are. It's funny. I, I thought I was OG. I got in in 2015. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm the OG, but you are like, you've been in it. Before we get going, if you could say to any customer, here's the first step you need to do, what would that first thing to do so that they can start leveraging this power of, the, of this technology? I think the first step is choose somebody who has been in the industry for a while and really understands what they're doing and can identify that use case to make you successful. You know, if you're out of innovation teams, where, which is where we typically like to work these days is, you know, a VP or, or somebody that really wants to implement this at scale, get in touch with someone and get started. Try a really quick POC as fast as possible. Just get some initial metrics, see if it works, and then, you know, start thinking about rolling this out. The sooner you, you, you get started, the better. It's going to take time to get people comfortable with technology, uh, with how to create it, with you know, where it's best applied. You know, a company like ours can really help get you started and, and kind of rolling. Well, you know, Scott, Scott Montgomery from Scope AR, you know, this has been a, a wonderful uh, interview. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been the XR for Business podcast with your host, Alan Smithson. This podcast was another amazing example of how XR technologies are revolutionizing businesses across literally every industry, including manufacturing. So to learn more about Scope AR, visit scopear.com. Scott, again, thank you so much for joining me on this call. Thanks a lot, Alan. It was a pleasure. Being an influencer on LinkedIn in the XR field uh, really has opened up an opportunity for us to not only understand what corporations are looking for in virtual augmented mixed reality and artificial intelligence, but also from the aspect of the startup studios, developers, and enthusiasts out there and what they need. So what we decided to do after getting hundreds and hundreds of messages is to open up XR Ignite to the entire XR community of startups, studios, individuals, passionate people, and really to build a new community that brings together everybody who's passionate about this technology for a low cost and allow them to contribute, to learn, and to get better across the whole industry. That is really the reason why we started XR Ignite, to hyper-accelerate the XR for business industry, business and education. And one of the things that we just keep noticing is that there's so many resources out there. There's the VRAR Association, which we're partners with. There are you know, reports coming out daily. 
but there's no one source where people can come together and start just having conversations around how to get better in this industry. And that's why we started XR Ignite. I would encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you're on the corporate side, if you're a startup, if you're an individual, if you're an enthusiast, sign up today at xrignite.com and you'll be getting access to new reports, investor lists, media lists, exclusive content, interviews with our mentors. We have over 56 mentors. And if you're a startup and you pay an annual fee, you'll actually have the opportunity to book a one-on-one, one-hour call with one of the mentors. What we're doing with that is we're actually recording those sessions, we're transcribing them, taking out any personal information, and we're making those transcripts available to all members. So I think XR Ignite is gonna drive a lot of value for anybody in this industry who's looking to up their game, and also for corporates who want a real insight as to what technology is coming out. So I would encourage everybody to sign up at xrignite.com, and I really look forward to driving value, executing on our mission to hyper-accelerate XR for business and education.